Saying. Okay, I'm looks like saying. it's going. I was saying. Saying. Matic, like a pickaxe. Food, cut, nourish. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without which restraint, but I do not turn from your law. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. Tonight I remember your name, O Lord, and I will keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. Okay, good stuff there. Letters I in. Uh, let's see, we're get a couple things done, but we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. Which, that was when the nation was in a crisis, 9-11. Now we're in, now we're in our own self-inflicted crisis. Okay, let's see here. All right, well, I, uh, I know I should have, but I didn't write down any uh, prayer requests. So we'll just go to the Lord in prayer about the uh, situation in the world, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and we thank you that uh, you are with us no matter what happens. And uh, a lot of people are at unease right now. There's a lot of stress in the world, and we know that this is no surprise to you, and we're just not going to let it damage our calm, which we find in you and through uh, the giving of your son, Jesus, because in him we have a hope that transcends all of this. And so just help us to be fixed steadfastly on uh, on you, not to worry about the things that are happening. And uh, should they come, we just accept your hand in it. You knew before the beginning of uh, creation what would occur with each life that would ever live, and you uh, are intimately aware of us. So uh, we thank you for that knowledge. And uh, just as the birds don't have to uh, worry about the next day, and they go out and they forage each day for their food, you've given us the same ability is to just tend to our needs for the day and not worry about tomorrow. So we thank you for that comfort you've given us, and it's written right in your word for us to refer to anytime we need it. And uh, so we leave all these difficult times in your capable hands, and we love you, we praise you, and we glorify you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All future, right. Future um, request. What's a future request? Uh, from me to you. Yes. Is that uh, with the people that are on that list, Yes. you should pray for them. Oh, okay, we'll do that before we close then. I okay. meant to do that today, and I did not have that. I usually keep it right here, and uh, there. I, when I write prayers, I put them over here, so I don't make that mistake, but there we go. Um, let's see here. We have uh, Lisa in Australia. It's her birthday today, which is not yet technically, because here it's not there. But the time over in Australia, it's officially Lisa's birthday, so we'll wish her a happy birthday. She uh, emailed a few minutes ago, and that tells me she's up. So, okay, we're in uh, one Corinthians. I'm sorry, two Corinthians, chapter nine, verse eleven. You will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion, and the, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Okay, this is completely different <coughs> tense of the verbs, and it says, "While you are enriched in everything, for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God." All right, these words are connected in thought to the previous verse. Taken together, they read, uh, let's see here, what was it? Uh, Ten, yes. Okay, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. 
Paul noted the multiplication of the seed in order to increase the fruits of your righteousness. This meant that what they earned would be sufficient to be spread out to others in the doing of good deeds. In addition to that, he now adds in that not only should others prosper from their sowing, but that they should likewise be enriched in everything. It is looking to an increase for them as well. However, the increase to them, again, has the purpose of all liberality. As they increase, they should become all the more charitable in their giving. The idea is that God who blesses and the blessings that we are given are not to be secreted away with no useful purpose in mind. Rather, they're to be shared so that others may be blessed as well. Paul certainly has the recipients of the intended gift in mind. The saints in Jerusalem were in need, and in the Corinthians' abundance, there was a chance to help that need. In this, it would cause thanksgiving through us to God. God is glorified through the thanks of those who receive such assistance. In the end, it all came from him, and so praise and thanks should always be directed to him for what he does for his people. These verses obviously have to be considered in light of the human condition. There are those who have come on hard times, and when this occurs, we should be willing to tend to them and help them out. This is the case with the saints in Jerusalem. There also are those who are simply unwilling to get up and help themselves. It would be contradictory to think that someone who is willing to work should constantly receive, or I'm sorry, unwilling to work, should constantly receive what others have worked for. The premise here is that God blesses us to bless others. If God blesses someone through our efforts, then that person should realize where their blessing has come from and endeavor to follow the same path. However, if they are lazy and unwilling to put forth their own effort, then they cannot be who the Lord is speaking of here. These verses simply cannot be used to justify wealth redistribution to the indolent and worthless. They need to change their own lifestyle, or they need to continue to wallow in the mud which they are unwilling to leave. That's just the way it is. What does it say in uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians? He who does not work doesn't eat. That's right. I just it, That's an obvious lesson, and people that take these type of verses out of their intended context, they rip them out and they make up all of these social gospels are doing damage to the word of God. And they're also harming the people they think they're helping because they're just keeping them in the same mud that they want to be in. If you want to be in that mud, then go fend for yourself. But if you want to get up and start working and earn your day's living, then go ahead and do it. It's your choice. Nobody's making you stay there. So, you know, and I understand there are people that really have troubles. They've got businesses that aren't doing well. They've got you know, all kinds of troubles. I'm not talking about people like that. I'm talking about people that just are happy doing nothing all day and expecting other people to take care of them, all right? If I have said it many times. I could not, I could turn down jobs all day long. Now, obviously, it's work that some people won't do, but people offer me jobs all the time. When I'm at 7-Eleven, they see me, and, hey, you want to come cut down a tree for me or something, and whatever, you know, and if it gets to that point in life and you're physically capable of doing it, then you need to get out there and do it, all right? But I'm, once again, I'm trying to not go too far over the border and say that somebody has a specialty and he wants to use that specialty and he can't find a job isn't to keep looking in the process, okay? There's a balance there. But people that just truly are not willing to work, those people shouldn't be given a thing. If you give it to them, they're going to spend it and they're going to ask you for something more tomorrow. It's not worth your time. Life application. Today, think of someone who has fallen on hard times and think about how you can bless them in their need. 
Let them know that they are not alone in their trials, but that you are there with them. Such encouragement may be just what they need during their moment of darkness. All right, people have needs, and if they come to you for it, then try to be helpful. You know, you said one time as you opened us that somebody helped you in a time of need and then let you go with, you don't even have to pay me back. You know, that's just a wonderful thing when somebody can do that for you. So it just, it, it makes you feel better. It takes pressure off of your own life. I mean, that's just a wonderful thing. Now, before we go on to verse 9, 12, um, seeing as how we were in 9-11 and that's a crisis verse because of 9-11, we'll talk about the crisis for a second, is that if the uh, Florida shuts down, which is not unlikely, uh, the doctor and Mabel said they're not going to be able to come anymore during the time because of where they live. And if it gets to the point where they say people have to stay indoors, I will continue to come here and sit all by myself and stream for people online. So well, people, totally well, I'm just, no, I'm saying here by myself. Here. Yeah. But I mean, if, if you can come, that's fine. I'm saying if nobody can come, I will still come and just pizza. do the sermons and the, uh, what's that? As long as you buy pizza. As long as I buy pizza. Well, we won't be doing that if they've got the pizza place closed. So right. anyway, but the point is that I will be here unless I am physically sick myself, I will continue to come here and we'll have streaming for the people that are back at home. Okay, uh, 9-12. This this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Okay, that one says the service supplied, right? Read it again. Service that you perform. Service that you perform. It's not only supplying. I see. So they've changed the administration of this service to the service you perform. Okay, so they're 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 changing it up a little bit. Okay, uh, Paul in describe. Well, let me read mine so that they know what I'm talking about. He said the service you perform. Okay, uh, this one says for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Okay, Paul in describing the gift which is being gathered had just mentioned that it is one which causes thanksgiving through us to God. To explain this further, he says, for the administration of this service, not only supplies the needs of the saints. In this, he uses the word liturgia, which is translated as service. It is the basis of our word liturgy. Yes, liturgy. In the sense, in this sense, the giving of the gift is not just to be considered as a beneficent act of humanity, but one of religious significance. This is evident from the second half of the verse. In supplying the desperate needs of the saints, the gift, Paul says, also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Thus, this verse is a fuller explanation of the words of the previous verse. Another word to consider is translated as supplies. Vincent's words studies explains the meaning of the word prosanoplero. It means literally, it fills up by adding to, supplementing what the saints lack. Through many thanksgivings, the need of the poor is filled like an empty vessel to the brim, and the supply overflows in the thanksgiving which it calls out. Thus, Christian beneficence does a double work in giving relief and in generating thankfulness. Okay, that's Vincent's word studies. He's showing you that the word has a a deeper meaning than you would just get off of the the, uh, surface of it. And once again, the word... I pronounced it horribly in the Greek. I'm not going to try to say it again because it's a, it's got the double um, vowel at the end, and sometimes it's a little hard for us to uh, to uh, 
Yeah, to stutter out here in the English language. Anyway, the uh, double work of Christian giving here is taking care of the desperate needs of the saints in Jerusalem, while two, producing many thanksgivings to God. There's two things going on with one gift. As can be seen from this, there is a marked difference between the giving of believers and that of non-believers. God is glorified through such giving when it is done by his faithful people. If you give somebody, uh, the point I'm making is if you give somebody that is not a believer a gift and they really, really appreciate it, they're going to say, thank you so much. I'm so thankful to you, right? God isn't glorified at all in any way, shape, or form. But if you give it to another Christian and say, this is because I love you as a fellow believer, or I know that you're in need, or whatever reason you're giving it to them, they will say, thanks be to God. I'm so thankful for what he has done through you to help me. So that's the point, is that giving to a non-believer or a non-believer giving either way will not have the same effect towards God that giving in a Christian context does. Okay, life application. God is deserving of all praise and glory for the wonderful blessings he provides among his people. James says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. As this is so, let us remember to give him the thanks that he is due, and it is right and proper to do so. Now, that verse from James is kind of interesting when it says that uh, uh, the perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The word that is used there is one which identifies a parallax. I think the Greek word is paralege, if I remember. Okay, a parallax is when you look at something from one view and another view, and you can see a slight difference. You know, your two eyes for, uh, are actually not looking at the same thing. They help us to focus on things. But if you close one eye and then open it and close the other eye, you'll see that there's a change in the view. That's a parallax. Or if you look at a star here and somebody looks at the star here, even if it's a billion light years away, there's going to be a variation in the view of that star. Okay. With God, there is no parallax. There is, it doesn't matter which way you look at God. It doesn't matter if you look at him from up, down, side by side, any pair of eyes on the planet or anywhere in this universe, there is no change in God. And so when we are glorifying God, we are doing it to the God that never changes in any way, shape, or form. And he is receiving our thanks from that particular perspective. It is something that he understands a lot more than we do, in other words. But uh, 9.13. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Wow, completely different. I mean, it says kind of the same thing, but while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. It's just completely worded differently. This verse is widely translated, as we just noted, and debated over. Charles Ellicott notes that its construction is that of a participle which has no direct grammatical connection with what proceeds. It is a standalone thought. The words, through the proof of this ministry, are not clear concerning what is being referred to. Is it the service that's being provided, or is it referring to the people who render the service? Either way, the result is that the Jewish believers, the ones down in Jerusalem, who will receive the gift will glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. They will see that the message of Christ has led to the Gentiles' faith in Christ. 
In turn, they will understand that the message didn't just go into the ears and out again, but it sank down into their hearts, resulting in obedience to the teachings of the Lord. This obedience is evidenced as noted above, either in the gift which is made or in the willing hearts of those who gave the gift. Either way, in the end, they together form into a whole ministry which results in their liberal sharing with them and all men. Paul is making it clear that what is being evidenced is a willingness to be obedient to the precepts that come along with receiving the gospel. Further, their status as Gentiles does not affect their ability to truly commune with the Jewish believers they are ministering to. Instead, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Romans 10 verse 12. Life application, there are many cultures on the earth with many different traditions and ways of worshiping the Lord. If they are Christians, they are a part of the one body and on an equal footing with all others. It is unrealistic to think that our personal form of worship is the only way to honor the Lord. Instead, he has called people out from all places in order to worship him in spirit and in truth. The externals are far less important than what is going on inside the heart. All right, 914. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Okay, that one's closer. The actual intent of Paul's words here is debated over once again. But what is certain is that the Greek is confusing. Albert Barnes gives the following analysis. This will all be Barnes's analysis. On the grammatical construction of this difficult verse, Dotteridge and Bloomfield may be consulted. It is probably to be taken in connection with 2 Corinthians 9.12 and 2 Corinthians 9.13 is a parenthesis. This interp thus interpreted, the sense will be the administration of this service, which is 2 Corinthians 9.12, will produce abundant thanks to God. It will also, 2 Corinthians 9.14, produce another effect. It will tend to excite the prayers of the saints for you and thus produce important benefits to yourselves. They will earnestly desire your welfare. They will anxiously pray to be united in Christian fellowship with those who have been so signally endowed with the grace of God. So you can see, he's given a pretty good analysis of that. He's relied on a couple other scholars, but every single one of the people uh, Charles Ellicott, Doddridge, Bloomfield, Albert Barnes were all schooled in the Greek. That's why I said this in a sermon not too long ago. They all are schooled in the Greek. And you'll have other scholars that will come to completely different conclusions on the same words, even though they're schooled in the Greek. Better than a Greek person today can speak Greek. They know it, okay? And yet they come to different conclusions. Therefore, it is a uh, fallacy in thinking to trust somebody just because they understand and speak Greek. That's a bad place to put your hopes, okay? People may understand Greek. I understand English, and it doesn't mean I understand everything that I've been taught, okay? It was all taught in English, and I may not understand two precepts of what I was taught in school today, okay? Make sure that what you are taught, you go home and you check, and it has to align with the rest of Scripture. Now, something like this, they're debating over whether it's a to God or a from you to the apostles to God or something, whatever. Okay, it's not really changing the intent of it. But when you start talking about real theological issues like predestination, okay, Calvinism, or as opposed to uh, Wesleyanism, or opposed to do you have free will or not free will, those are real places where you will find real 
differences and there can only be one answer okay and that's all it brings me it makes me think what you brought up earlier burke brought up a point that i said during the uh uh salvation sermons that uh, uh repentance is never said to for faith in christ okay it's not and he had, came up to me in a sneaky way and we did talk about this about five years ago in this class but we didn't record him at the time and i said you just you come right out of the black and you sneak up on you and he wants an answer right now he's very good at that which that's why i like burke is because he challenges you but um he asked about acts 20 verse 21 let me read it to you from uh, the bible first and then um uh why why is uh it not saying what you think it's saying it says in acts 2021 20, testifying to jews and also to greeks repentance towards god and faith towards our lord jesus christ and he says well that says repentance what is that talking about you said that repentance isn't necessary and i said that's correct and i said i've got to think this through i went back to the greek and what does the greek say it says um uh, i won't read it in greek but it says earnestly testifying to the jewish both and to greeks the in god repentance it's not speaking about repentance of sins at all it's Speaking about what you do when you place your faith in Christ. You are now changing your mind about what God has done in Christ. Okay, you're not repenting of any particular sin. You're repenting towards God, not the sin. You are acknowledging that you're a sinner now. And you're saying, I need God's forgiveness in Christ. Go ahead. Repentance means changing your mind. That's all it means. Why is that been because to... because people have bad theology like i said you take calvinists and they say that you uh you are regenerated in order to believe and i'm sorry that verse right there if anything else will blow that one right out of the water if you have to the jewish earnestly testifying to the jewish both and to greeks the in god repentance you must have free will mm -hmm. you have to be completely confused theologically to say i do not have free will in coming to jesus christ to read a verse like that or any verse i mean it, it is such a failed system of theology and yet people argue over it so it's the same thing why do people say you must repent of your sins it's because they've taken things out of their proper and intended it's context been it's been drilled into their head they don't want to change because they're you know, i'll look stupid if i change my mind after all these years or whatever the reason is people come to these things they have presuppositions and they are unwilling to budge okay and that's just the way people are i'm sorry that if you're wrong, you're wrong, and I will not never teach the doctrine that I believe. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it for money. I'm not going to do it for a lot of hits on Facebook or on YouTube or anything like that. That's not going to happen. I'm going to teach what is proper doctrinally from Scripture. And if somebody says that you have to repent of your sins, then they are teaching a false gospel okay that verse there cannot be used to that and i'm glad he brought that up because I, it just had left my mind because one it's in the book of acts which is a descriptive account of what occurred it doesn't prescribe anything now that verse does tell you a process that's going on but it doesn't prescribe anything it says this is what you are to do this is how it is to be done basically without actually saying the, it, the way yeah the, the way that an epistle would an epistle is something that gives you actual grounded instruction now, Tom Alley isn't here, and he hasn't showed up, so I'm hoping he's okay, because he never misses anything, ever. He's probably being he, he might be, because he's got, you know, that he's still on those medications, and so that may be it. I wish that he would let us know that, though, because I'm going to be thinking of him until I get home and give him a call. So, that's what? He's, he said he's been having some issues. We went to see his heart 
Oh, that's right. Well, we need we need to call and find that out. We we need to we need to call and find that out. Um, no, no. I, I he. Well, if you oh I I don't want, oh you've got his number. I don't want to give it out over the thing. Okay, let's go ahead and we'll go into uh, oh I got to finish what I'm doing. I just read Albert Barnes' commentary, and um, as I said, because of the difficult nature of the Greek, this seems to be in line with what Paul was trying to say based on what Albert Barnes just gave, okay? He was taking these other verses and tying them together with the words of this verse. One way or another, an effect would be produced in the hearts of the people in Jerusalem towards the Gentile churches who had given the gift. They would come to understand that the Gentiles, like them, had received God's exceeding grace. With this knowledge, they would then glorify God. This is actually what occurred as well, as is documented in Acts 21. Dang it, I closed that, and I was just on that page, and so i got to find Acts 21 again. I was on 20, and it's right there. Uh, Acts 21, 17 says, And when they had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail all those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God or glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and how, how, and they are all zealous for the law. Thank you. I got, no, no. Okay, go ahead. How God used his ministry through them. That's just what you read. Okay. He reported the things that were done. God used them. Right. At first. It's not that he did a whole bunch of jumbo mumbo, but yeah. God did it through him. That's right. Yeah. God, did, He is the chosen vehicle, which takes you right back to Acts chapter 9. Go, and I will show him all the things he must do and all that he will suffer for me, etc. So that's right. God is working through Paul to affect the means in the now, Gentiles. Dr. McGee always said that 1 Thessalonians 1 9 gives you the description of repentance. He says, how you turn to God from idols to serve. The living God. Living they changed the their mind about what they were doing. Yeah. That's right. Turn from idols. He said, "That's the that's repentance. repentance. It's a turning yeah. of away from one thing into another. That's they've changed their mind about something. I'm not going to worship idols anymore. I'm not going to. Yeah, that's right. But there is something to be said. Now I know that there's one God, and He has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. Then there's something else to be said about. I don't know about lying. I don't know about stealing. I don't know about fornication. I don't know about uh, sin, 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 sin. In other words. The point that I'm making about repentance from sin is that you can't know what those sins are until you're doctrinally taught on those things. So how can you say you need to repent from that until you know that you're doing wrong? That wrong. That's exactly right. So there is no, and that's the point of that entire sermon, is that you were saved by grace through faith, and that is it. If you add anything to it, then it is not the simple gospel. Okay, anything. I don't care what it is because everything else follows logically in another categorical box and it comes after that step of faith. Once you have that step of faith, then you may or may not be taught by somebody. You may have just heard it on the street and they say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. And then the guy leaves and he never goes to a church again. That's not his fault. I mean, he he's from uh, Papua New Guinea and he happened to be here for a uh, conference and he goes back to Papua New Guinea to the village and there's no church there. He can't be doc doctrinally uh, taught. Everybody got that? So everything comes in a categorical box. And once you step outside of the boxes, that is where you have your error. Just like with we were talking about with Calvinism. They step out of one box into another box without closing the first box. And they start mingling these things. And when they do, you get bad 
bad theology, or you actually get her heresy if you're going into like strong, Cal um, yeah, strong Calvinism, where you get into uh, hyper Calvinism, where you get in double predestination. And as I said during the sermon, that's what John Calvin actually teaches is double predestination. So the first heretic Calvinist was John Calvin. Okay, let's go. Nine fourteen. Oh, wait a minute. I'm still reading. Am I? Yes. Um, uh, uh, where was I? Acts 21, uh, 17 through 20, which at the time the gift was presented to them are the verses that I just read you. And then life application, and we'll get on. Uh, there are portions of Scripture which are complicated, but understanding or misunderstanding them is because of our limitations, not because of God's limitations. We need to take the Bible as a whole and allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. In doing so, there will always be a satisfactory explanation for that which is at first difficult to understand. And that's why I like Burke. He's always giving you ch challenging questions. He gives you something that you have to think about, and usually it's right in the middle of why I'm thinking about something else, and so I've got to cancel what I'm doing and put that on the side. And I love it. We're always challenging each other like that, so it's great stuff. 915. My, my oh. dad always said, somebody's going to clear that up for you someday, you know, in a sermon or whatever. That's right. Teaching. It, it, that just happened to me a million times. A lot of times. Happens to me too, yeah. and I never exaggerate. But you know what? I found that if you have something like that and you say, I just wonder what that is, just ask the Lord. He, you don't have to wait 20 years. The Lord will send somebody to clear it up right away. I'm telling you, you'll read something in a commentary or you'll you know, walk down the street and a piece of paper will be blowing and you'll go to pick it up and it'll have the answer. To, I, when you ask the Lord about his word, he is going to give you the answer. That I, I have seen that so many times that I can't count them. I just, I, I could not. But that is that is an absolute truth in at least Charlie Garrett's life, and I would pray that it's in all of yours as well. If you don't know something or you're struggling over something, just ask the Lord. I, reveal this to me, okay? 9.15. And the answer ties it all up short verse. Yes. With one word. Thanks be to God for his incredible gift. Absolutely. Or this one says indescribable gift. Uh, incredible makes it sound like, oh, that's incredible, whereas indescribable is, I, I just can't describe it. So, you know, they're they're approaching the same thing in a different way, which I love. Okay. His, his, is, the his is the important part of it. That's right. His indescribable gift. To, the, to end the chapter and also the topic of the collection of the gift, which he has been talking about for a long time now, Paul breaks into a sudden and emotional proclamation of thanksgiving. This is not at all unique to his writings, as he elsewhere suddenly breaks forth in praise and thanks to God. It is as if Paul contemplated the words which he had penned and couldn't restrain himself at certain points. He's writing and suddenly reads what he's been writing, and his heart starts, and he just, he just pens out the first great emotion that comes out of him. It's, it's marvelous when you come to those in his, like uh, uh, Romans 7 is one where he does that. Um, and not only was it an internal expression, but one which he simply had to share with others as well. And so what does he do? He writes it down. The word for thanks is the same as the word elsewhere translated as grace. Even in the previous verse, it is used this way. There it said, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Scholars debate what this grace is intended to be. Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it Christ Jesus? The answer seems likely to be the same grace which he just mentioned. He turned the thought around from the exceeding grace of God in you into thanks. If this is so, then it refers to the entire process of salvation, which was initiated 
through their confession to the gospel of Christ, which was mentioned in verse 13. Because of their salvation, which came from this confession, and because of their obedience to it, all things were working out for a good and common goal among the saints. In other words, it all comes back to the work of Jesus Christ in them. He is the gift of God through which all other things find their right and proper place. And this seems certain by the use of the word indescribable. The Greek word from which this is translated is used only here in the New Testament. It comes from two separate words. The first is a negative prefix, and the second is a word which means to declare. In other words, it cannot be declared, okay? Or, yeah, let me see what I said here. In other words, there are simply no words which could fully express this gift. This is certainly the case concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the indescribable gift, which is the basis of every other good thing which comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. So, life application, and we'll get into another chapter. If you are in the mood to break out in praise or thanks to God, don't hold it in. You might explode. Let it out. There you go. Said the, rocks would cry out. the rocks might cry out instead. If you don't, they might just do it. Now, how do I get this status of saints? He says here, this is for the saints. What are you talking about? You, he, uh, says, he said the saints, this is for the saints. Awesome. What, what verse are you talking about? We're in, we're in, we're in 12. Four? He says, these are the saints, and then chapter 1, it says, Oh, see, that's what I'm asking. You start asking questions, and I don't know what verse you're in. Okay, so what, ask, ask again saying, now. What is this saint business? Is, 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 oh, okay, yeah, what he just said. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. So I'm St. Burke? You are. St. Burke, that's correct. <laughs> that That is correct. Yeah, I had no idea what you were referring to, so yes. Saint Burke, you are St. Burke with what? The questioner. Yeah, St. Burke the questioner. Yeah, we got, got to give titles to all the saints. St. Burke the questioner. <laughs> So uh, I see Mrs. Garrett just showed up. Are you doing okay, Miss Garrett? You don't have any fever, any cough? No? Okay, then you can come closer. All right. Uh, we're in chapter 10, verse 1 now. You know, I, I, I like that because somebody years ago said to me, you know, the saints are apart from this regular Christian. Absolutely that not. Is, you're, you're off Absol trail. That was somebody that was first raised in the Catholic Church, yes. for sure, because that, 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 that cannot was, be found in that's Scripture. How we were. That's right. That cannot be found anywhere in Scripture. Saint, there was a statue of you someplace. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a saint somewhere. And they, a special. You're a special. That's right. Well, we're all special in Christ if we are in Christ. That's it. Okay, 10-1. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. Okay, he's obviously making a point that people perceive him in this way. In beginning a new subject, we read an emphatic expression. Okay, now, uh, I, what made me stop in my head is that they actually put it in the middle of his verse. This one begins the verse. Now, I, Paul, myself. He's being emphatic, and so at the beginning of it, okay, which... It, they just kind of blew it with the NIV by doing that, but I understand. Yeah. Okay, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent, I am bold toward you. That's why it's good to have a couple of translations, right, so you can see the difference. Okay, um, in beginning a new subject, we read an emphatic expression, now I, Paul. It is an expression he uses several times elsewhere in his epistles to indicate especially strong emotions. 
After this emphatic introduction, he says to the Corinthians that he is pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The intent is that his plea he desires not to be thought of as an authoritarian ruler, but to rather be an emulation of the Lord. Those in Corinth, like all people who are saved, were granted gentle mercy. Instead of a rod of iron, they received meekness and tenderness. Paul's plea to them is in hopes of emulating that example rather than requiring him to be harsh towards them. To show that he can be either, he says, while still speaking about himself, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. This will further be explained in verse 10, but the intent is that the impression of those in Corinth is that Paul's attitude when present with them was not that of a strong leader. Rather, they looked at him as timid and not capable of enforcing discipline. However, when he was absent from them, he was bold toward them. Though not stated yet, this implies that his letters represented him in his absent, absence as to who he would be when present. Everybody see that? They're saying, oh, he's a weak guy, but when he writes these letters, he's all Mr. Bold, okay? And so the thought this verse is conveying is as follows. One, he is pleading with the Corinthians in the spirit of Christ, which is one of meekness and gentleness. This is in hopes of the Corinthians responding to his appeal without him requiring to be bold and harsh. Two, he has demonstrated a lowly, humble attitude among them in the past, and so they would expect him to be the same when he returns. Three, even if his letters are bold, it is just a letter and his actions won't match his words. And then four, therefore they have nothing to fear concerning him being bold and harsh. That's the attitude that they seem to be displaying towards him, and he is trying to get them to think this through, that that is not the case, okay? Life application, we should remember. Paul's careful explanation of himself here and realize that just because an individual displays an easygoing character, it may be that there is a point where that will change. Moses was noted as the most humble man ever, but he also demonstrated boldness when needed. The lesson is that we should never push the buttons of another and assume that their gentle demeanor is all that we will see of them. Okay, so next verse. You know, some read that as meek instead of humble by right. Moses. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I went through that. When we went through that. I don't know if you remember the sermon, but I, I went through a big expansion on just that single thought about Moses, and is that actually what it's talking about? Because Strength under control. Strength under control. Yes, strength he, under control. He Yes, he did. He went off the handle and he didn't get into the promised land. But that was to make a picture, as we're seeing in our sermons, the law cannot inherit the promise. And those who are of the law cannot inherit the promise. If you have not been, I'm talking to the people online right now, if you have not been watching the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers sermons, now we're going into Deuteronomy, you've missed a progression of thought of what God is trying to teach us. And it all is inclusive of the person of Moses who received those first five books, and he is representative of the law. And Moses will not get into the inheritance. He does not pass over Jordan and into the promise. And that is to make a picture that you, if you were trying to observe the law in order to be pleasing to God, showing him how much better you can do than Jesus did, you will not inherit the inheritance. 
you have set aside grace and you are a debtor to the entire law, something which is a self-condemning act. So I would ask you if you're into the Hebrew Roots Movement or the Seventh-day Adventists or any of those crazy ideologies that say that we have to observe the law of Moses, which is set aside, obsolete, annulled, and nailed to the cross, that you need to drop that and you need to come to Jesus Christ really quickly because we don't know what's going to happen in the world 10 minutes from now, much less half a lifetime away that you think you have. So please come to Christ and put away your selfish deeds of the law in trying to embarrass God. What's that? The law came but first chapter of John, the law came but Moses. Grace That's right. Grace. grace came through Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's absolutely right. 100%. Okay, 10-2. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Okay, this one's a bit different, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. It says the same thing in the second clause, but uh, it's just a different way of doing it, walking according to the flesh. Okay, Paul just noted that his attitude and demeanor is considered lowly when present, but bold when he is not. In this, the assumption was made that when he came again, he wouldn't be bold when it was necessary. Now, to correct that deficient assumption, he shows that he can be bold when necessary. The implication is that he is restrained from being so in the past, but the future may be different. This is evidenced by the word, but. Contrary to their perceptions, Paul begs for them to consider his authority and his ability to exercise that authority. He does this by saying that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. There's an obvious tension between Paul and some in the congregation. He is restrained from calling them out, but should they continue with their negative attitudes towards him, he fully intends to highlight it and bring his authority against it. That reminds me, before I go on, that it just came to mind is that Somebody else has the same attitude, an individual, in one of the books, one of the other epistles. Does anybody know what I'm thinking of? Maybe in one of the epistles of John? No. Yeah, Diotrephes. Very close. Uh, I think it's in 3 John. Just came to mind. We'll see if... Um, uh, okay, yeah, we're just going to read the whole epistle. It'll take us 15 seconds. It's a real short one. The Elder to the Beloved Gaius. It says there... Um, uh, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, remember, this is coming from John, who writes all about love, the love of God, you know, the love of the brethren, etc. He writes about love through the whole thing. And then what does he go on to say? For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully wherever, whatever you do for the brethren and for the strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. It's all just good and fine and loving the way he always is. And then he says, I wrote to the church but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prattling against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to 
putting them out of the church. So he's saying, I'm going to confront this guy if I come, just the way Paul is doing right there. And we'll finish up the letter. It says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. So once again, he supports his testimony, just like Paul is doing there. I had many things to write you, but I do not wish to write you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Wonderful little letter, but right there, he does exactly what Paul is doing. I may be bold towards some, right? Okay, <laughs> we'll continue with the commentary now. And the cause for the tension that Paul is having is that those he is referring to, as Paul says, think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Albert Barnes notes that they suppose this, or they accuse me of it, but the word us here, Paul means himself, though it is possible also that he speaks in the name of his fellow apostles and laborers who were associated with him, and the objections may have referred to all who acted with him. So he's, he's saying it's probably Paul only, but it may be inclusive of the other people with Paul. Whether this is only Paul who is being accused of this, or whether it is he and his associates, some were saying that he or they walk according to the flesh. The word walk is an idiom for one's way of life and conduct. Therefore, they are saying that Paul and others possibly were not walking appropriately, but were living their lives in one way while speaking and teaching in another. Paul will show them in the coming verses that walking in the flesh, which we all do while living in this fallen human body, is not the same as warring in the flesh. There's a distinction to be made, and it will correct these troublemakers' faulted accusations against him. Life application, unfortunately, even the most humble elder or pastor must at times take off the gloves and speak firmly and forcefully in order to silence those who disturb the fellowship. Paul's example here, along with many others in Scripture, shows that when a heavier hand is necessary, it is to be brought out and used. Okay, 10-3. But though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Talking about discipline, Adrian Rogers gave a great uh, note of discipline uh, before one of his sermons one time. It just came to mind. I said, taking off the gloves in my last life application. He said that there was this boxer, a big rugged guy, and he won all of his matches, and he he came to Christ. And so this guy came, and he thought, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if this guy's really up to the snuff. Now that he's a Christian, he won't he won't bat an eye. And so he walked up and knocked on the door, and here comes this big boxer, and he says, I'm gonna I'm gonna push this guy's buttons, and he slaps him as hard as he can on the side of his face, and he says. Uh, well, the Lord told me that uh, if a man slaps you on the right side, you turn your face and let him slap you on the left. And so he turns his left, and the guy slaps him good and hard, and he says, well, the Lord gave me no further instruction. <laughs> he beat him up. <laughs> okay, there you go. All right, 10-3. I'm going to read it again. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. <clears throat> it is of note that Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, Walking in the flesh is a term used several times to indicate living in a worldly way. For example, we can go to 2 Corinthians 1.17, Romans 8, 12 and 13, and 1 Corinthians 1.26. If you want, go ahead and turn there. And yet the same term is also used to show that we are simply temporal beings with limited human capabilities and with all of the associated frailties. 
A few such verses are Galatians 2.20, Philippians 1.22-24, and even 1 Timothy 3.16, which is speaking of Christ. Okay, so the term flesh means the physical body. It can mean the moral state of the body. It can mean different things, and the context has to derive what is being said. Therefore, unlike the previous verse here, he is not equating a walk in the flesh with sin and worldliness, but with the frailties we possess, which can lead to sin and worldliness. Then this body of affirmity or of infirmity, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. That's Paul's words. The Greek word from which the idea of waging war comes from speaks of a soldier executing his duties in battle. This is a common theme that Paul uses in his writings. He's going to continue with this line of thought and then explain it in the verses ahead. There's a real battle going on, and it is a battle in which we are engaged. However, it is not a battle that is waged on a worldly, fleshly level. Rather, it is one that is waged in the spirit. This battle is spoken of by Paul in Romans chapter 8. Let me take you there very quickly, where it says in Romans 8, verse 8, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And that means Christ's righteousness. It doesn't mean yours. It means Christ's righteousness, life application. We cannot deny that we are in fallen bodies, and those bodies have frustrating limitations, some of which cause us to stumble. But God gives us more grace. We have been saved by the blood of Christ and are already seated with him in the heavenly places. When we stumble, let us get up brush ourselves off and get back into the battle. We are in a war until we are called home. Therefore, as soldiers under authority, we need to conduct ourselves according to the word of our leader. Okay, 10-4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Okay, that's close enough where we're going to let it stand. The words of this verse show us that along with our war noted in the previous verse, which is not in the flesh, the weapons that we use are not material or carnal weapons. Rather, they are spiritual. They are described by Paul in several places of the New Testament, such as in one of them is in 1 Thessalonians 5. And he says, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, but let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and of love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's just one of them. An even fuller description is found in Ephesians 6. That's correct, 11 through 16. In these verses, he uses real, tangible things and equates them to spiritual concepts. It is with these spiritual things that we do indeed battle against the forces of evil. Starting in this verse and for the next couple of verses, he will explain how these weapons are focused, beginning with, for pulling down strongholds. This is a military concept where someone who is in a defensive position has their fortress pulled down from around them so that they can be easily attacked and overcome. A beautiful example of this concept is found right in the Bible. In 2 Samuel, it says in chapter 17, verses 11 through 13, 17, 17. 11 through 13. Therefore, I advise 
that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba like the sand that is by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground and of him all the men who are with him there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he has withdrawn into a city, then let all Israel bring ropes to that city and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. Uh, yes, I think that was Ahithophel. Um, let's see here. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. So that was Hushai. Ahithophel is the one that, uh, or maybe it was vice versa. Anyway, let me go back and I'll find... I, oh, yeah, I think you might be right. Oh, Hushai said that. Yeah, that's right. It was Hushai. Hithophel gave the first advice, and then Hushai came and gave the second advice. So there you go with that. Okay. Um, let's. But very good. You got the word there. You got the name. Uh, okay. Uh, where were we? It should be noted now that just because Paul is speaking of a spiritual battle, which he uses spiritual implements to obtain its purposes, this does not exclude Christians from entering true battles with real weapons. This type type of sleight of hand use of a verse to mean something not intended is common and it is inappropriate. Just because Christians are in a spiritual war does not mean that they are limited only to a spiritual battle. You'll see this people post stuff like that on Facebook all the time. I'm I'm in a spiritual war and I don't you know I I'm not in the military or I don't vote. You see people say crazy things like that. You know, I'm I'm a not of this world. And they take these verses and completely tear them out of their intended context. They live in this world, I guarantee you that they pay taxes, okay? They buy at the store. They probably hoard whatever, <laughs> but they then say that, oh, I'm in a, I, I'm not of this world, and they refuse to do their civic duty. They refuse to defend the nation that they are benefiting off of, and that is not a Christian concept in any way, shape, or form. So don't use a sleight of hand and pull verses out of their intended context, okay? Life application. There is a spiritual battle which rages around us. It is, it is as real as any other type of warfare, but it involves matters of the highest importance. We must be ready at all times with the weapons of our battle and employ them in faith against the unseen enemies that come against us. Take time to read Ephesians 6, 11 through 16 and think on Paul's use of terminology concerning our spiritual warfare. And seeing so, we got a little bit of time. We'll do that right now because people will shut off the uh, stream afterward and they'll go and they'll eat dinner and they'll forget to read it. So we're going to read it together right now. Ephesians 6, I went way too far. I'm talking and not... Uh, uh, Ephesians, Philippians. There we go. Six, and then we're starting in verse 11. Let's see here. I'll start in 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, he's going to take real physical things. He was in a prison, and he's probably looking at a guard and writing about the guard's implements and just equating them to spiritual purposes. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The devil is real. He's out there, and he will try to confuse you. As a matter of fact, this morning I typed 1 John 2 verse 16, I think. Maybe it was 15. Let me go there. And uh, 1 John, I mean James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John 2. And this morning I typed, um, yeah, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. Great commentary. In 10 days, you'll get a chance to read it, okay? 
Anyway, uh, I'm not saying that my commentary is great. It's just great that it's a commentary on the Word of God, okay? So I, it's for you to decide if what I typed is great. But the, the commentary, reading the verse and reading the commentary, you'll say, that's great. Okay, anyway, um, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this <coughs> age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. He's looking at the belt on this guy's waist. and He's probably saying, hey, I'll make that equate to truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, you're covering yourself from all the darts of the uh, enemy coming in. You're righteous, 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It doesn't mean you have to wear shoes, thank goodness. It's, he's using a metaphor there. He's not actually saying go and put on shoes, okay? Because that would be very difficult for me to... to uh, I've seen you in shoes. Huh? You have. I've worn shoes once in a while. So once again, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, he's saying get your feet ready and get going, okay? And I would think that you would actually be freer without shoes because you wouldn't have to bend over and put them on. You just run and tell the gospel, okay? But other people may disagree. They may get a thorn. Okay, above all, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So there you go with that. And I think I said 11 through 16, but it should be 11 through 17. So let me make a note right there. Oh, so you're I can... making that note. You're going to be in uh, Revelation with the daily... Uh... Yes, pretty soon, within a couple months. This year. <laughs> oh yeah, it'll be this year, probably. Yeah, we'll we'll start we'll start Revelation. Yeah, well, you know, you never know. I might punch my ticket. I'm out at the mall every day picking. You know what? I've never seen such despicable people. You know, the same people that are hoarding all the t toilet paper. I pull into that parking lot now, and everywhere those little hand wipes. They just they wipe off their their Bill. door handle or whatever, and then they just throw it in the parking lot. There are hand wipes everywhere. I just can't believe it. I've n never seen a hand wipe on the ground at that place. And all of a sudden, the whole world is panicking over this thing. And they're throwing their hand. Just put it in a bag and take it with you. And if I see somebody doing that in front of me, it's going to be in their car before they shut their door. I'll tell you. Immediate. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, might, yeah, maybe. Maybe you'll punch your ticket. Yeah, yeah, well, I might punch my ticket picking up all those dirty hand wipes. But you have a question. No, no, I have a comment. You have a comment. Uh -uh. If, if you read Frank Peretti's. Yes. You know. This present gardeners or whatever it was that he no. called it. You haven't read it? No. Oh, you got to read. Books. I don't read books. I, I got one book I read. I'm stuck on this. Oh, he's talking about all these these things in the that we can't see. That, oh, the spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. Oh. Yeah. And, and, Frank, what's his name? Say it again so people Peretti. can. Peretti. Peretti. Frank yeah. Peretti. Okay, yeah. if you want to read, Burke recommends it, so it's got to be good. Burke Peretti's book on yeah. spiritual warfare. Is yeah. that it? Uh, uh, spiritual wickedness Frank, or something spiritual like that. He's got two, two Frank. books. Frank. Not Burke Peretti. Oh, uh, it's whatever. Frank. It's Frank. Frank, I won't try again. He said it. Okay. All right. I'm too much going on in my little brain. Yeah, I've never seen such pigs in my life out there. These people are just, they're going ballistic. Okay. 10-5. Ten, 10-5. Five. Ten, five. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Okay, I like the way this one is worded more. It's different, but I prefer this one. Um, it says, casting down arguments. It's putting it in kind of the uh, verbal form. 
and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's a little different, but I just prefer that one. Okay, scholars assign the casting down arguments to the we of verse 3 and not the weapons of verse 4. This is based on agreement of the participle between the two thoughts. In other words, we war casting down arguments. One use of our spiritual warfare is that we are to have enough knowledge of the source of our faith to challenge those who reason against it. If you're not going to Bible studies and if you're not reading the word, you cannot do this. And this is what Paul says that we are to do. We are to do that, okay? He's not just speaking about himself, even though he's referring to himself. He's making a point that all generations henceforward are going to have to do this until the return of Christ. So he can't be just speaking about himself, okay? There are many who deny the Christian faith entirely. There are those who defend their own misguided religions, and there are heretics within the faith. All of these are opponents who need to be challenged. Their arguments need to be cast down and crushed by the superior knowledge and revelation which comes from the Christian faith, which is only found in the Bible. That's why I just got done doing 10 doctrine sermons, because somebody asked me to do them. And three or four of those doctrine sermons, maybe little parts of all of them, I, I just can't remember, but three or four of them were specifically directed towards people that are incorrect in their theology, people that have made errors in their thinking, and they are being passed on to other people because of that. And some of them were very famous people, people that have huge audiences all the way around the world with tens and hundreds of thousands of people watching them every week, and yet their theology is deficient. The main one, the worst perpetrator of all of them is the guy out in Texas. I mean, what he teaches is absolutely not only unbiblical, it's anti-biblical. It's anti-Christian. But some of these guys have just got subtle little errors in there, and they need to be corrected. Okay? And that's why we do that. Or we have somebody that is, you know, fawning over somebody that's dead 400 years ago because he had a good systematic theology, but parts of his theology are wrong. And people still continue to teach those wrong theologies through two, three, four hundred years later. There's a real problem with that, especially with the fact that Israel is back in the land now. Israel is back, and you get Reformed theology that continues to say the church replaced Israel. And they're so blinded by their own presuppositions and biases that they cannot accept that God is actually keeping his promise despite them not keeping their side of the bargain. It is irrelevant if Israel has not kept their part of the bargain. If God says, I have covenanted with you, he will never break that. Hence, salvation must be of the Lord and it must be eternal. Because if you have done something that can cause you to lose your salvation, then it was never by grace through faith, and it was not of the Lord. That's all there is to it. God made a promise to Israel, and he is not going to renege on it. So, so much for replacement theologians, okay? Anyway, likewise, we are to cast down every high thing that exalts itself, this is Paul's words, against the knowledge of God. Charles Ellicott notes that the noun probably belongs like stronghold to the language of military writers and indicates one of the rock fortresses, which were so conspicuous in all ancient systems of defense. The opponents of Christianity stood themselves up as if in a mountain fortress that cannot be reached by their enemies. They shoot their weapons, intending to destroy the argument of Christianity, but we have the true knowledge of God on our side, and therefore our attacks can and will prevail when they are properly engaged in the battle. 
The enemy feels exalted, but by standing on the truth of God, his arguments will be cast down. The thought is found in Job chapter 24, which we'll go there very quickly. It's, uh, Job 24, which I'm just about to start the book of Job again uh, another day or so, and I'll be in there. So let's see here. Job 24 verse 24 says, oh, where are we? They are exalted for a little while. Then they are gone, they are brought low, they are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain. Finally, the waging of our warfare is essential for bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul's words again. Paul continues with military terms. After pulling down the strongholds and storming the high things which attempt to exalt themselves, captives are taken. Now think of this, we've got people that are... Uh, into evolution, right? Darwinian evolution. It's an untenable system. It doesn't work. That's why it's still called a theory hundreds of years later because it has no proof, not a single bone of evidence, okay? But it stands in opposition to God. And so people love to use Darwinian evolution as they're marching against Christianity. And if you simply know your Bible, if you're simply able to explain things properly, and if you don't know about archaeology, that's fine, because there are people that are Christians that have done all of the work necessary. You can find it in Genesis Apologetics. You can find it in, uh, there's a couple other sites, very good sites that have done all the work. All you need to do, if you know somebody that's an evolutionist, is just look at what they have to say, and the evidence is so overwhelming. I was watching one just recently. Uh, where is it? I, I'm going to blow the locations. You'll get the idea. So I'm just going to make up a fairyland. Okay, you've got... Uh, Fairyland here, and you've got uh, uh, the oceans are coming in, all right? And they found all of these dinosaurs in Fairyland. I, maybe it's Montana, whatever, okay? I just don't want to say the wrong place. I'll tell you where that was. That was, is Genesis history? Uh, well, that, that too, but that's not what I was watching. Okay. But what they, uh, what they did in this is they said all of these dinosaurs are there, but guess what dinosaurs were not there? See, it wasn't is Genesis history because this is something from another video that I just, and I never heard this before, but there are no little dinosaurs there. None. What means that they were running from rising waters and the little ones could not keep up and eventually they got swept away. And that proves right there that there was a sudden instantaneous flood that these things were... Little ones, you're talking about their offspring. Their offspring, that's right. That. Their offspring. Oh, he covered that yeah. too? Okay, and so all there are adults and they were able to run fast enough to get to some place where they were finally... In other words, the Bible will confirm itself if you simply are willing to look at the disciplines which are related to the Bible, archaeology, geology, astronomy, etc. All of these things will work together in harmony and in accord with the Word, and you will be able to tear down the strongholds. Okay, yes, go ahead. Henry Morris, the Genesis Flood. Okay. Henry Morris. Henry Morris did a good job of it. On the Genesis Flood. The Genesis Flood. And that's an older book, but yeah. it's still good. Yeah. Okay, that's right. Okay, Henry Morris. There you go. So we got, and you can watch, as he said, is Genesis history. There's all kinds of apologetic sites out there. If somebody wants to argue with you, just brush up on them. All you need to do is just watch an hour video, and you'll be up to snuff on that particular part of the discipline, and then go talk to them. Okay, so after pulling down the strongholds and storming the high things which attempt to exalt themselves, captives are taken. Jesus referred to exactly this when he presented himself in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. Here's what happened in Luke chapter 4. 
Luke chapter 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, and 4. Okay, and then we want to go to Luke 4, 18, and it says there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. However, and I don't think that's the verses that I want. I really don't, because I'm talking about bringing people captive. And so it may be uh, 3, 18, and 19, or it may be 5, 18, and 19. Um, uh, no, it's definitely that one. I don't know why I chose that, that particular verse without explaining myself. But um, uh, yeah, okay. Anyway, the intent is not the literal physical physical destruction of the enemy, but to bring them into a new stronghold. You're going to have to ignore what I said about Luke 4, because that is not the verses that I wanted. It could be Mark 4, 18 and 19. It could be Luke, you know, 5, 18 and 19, whatever. So I'll have to go back and rethink what I was thinking of at the time when I typed this. Anyway, uh, the intent is not the literal physical destruction of the enemy, but to bring them into a new stronghold, one which is to the obedience of Christ. If their arguments fail, it means that they were ineffective. Anyone who would cling onto an ineffective argument, and there are many, are perverse and will face God without Christ. But for those who are captured by obedience to Christ, they will face God in a completely different way. They will be free from the destruction that the enemies of Christ will face. Life application, there is only one proper way of waging the war which Paul writes of. It is to know Jesus Christ and to be able to defend our faith in him. And the only way to do that is to read, study, and comprehend the truths which are found in the Bible. When we do this, we will be fully prepared to engage in the battle with those who oppose his message. And it's the only way. You're not going to be able to do that any other way if you don't know the word and if you don't know the disciplines connected to the Lord like we were talking about a minute ago you're just going to make yourself look foolish. You can stand on the word all day long, and if you don't know it and you can't defend it, it does nobody any good at all except you. And I'm glad that you'll stand on the word, but if you don't know it, you're not helping anybody else with their walk or their reasoning things out. Yes? 418 does say release the captives. Okay. Maybe that's what I was... Oh, that is what I was talking about. Releasing the captives. So yeah. I just didn't go far enough. Okay. Yeah. All right, release the captives. That's exactly. Thank you, Burke. Okay, so what we want is is um uh, that was four eighteen of Luke. Four eighteen of Luke. So you want the whole thing in the context of it, which is Luke four. Oh yes, eighteen and then nineteen. I, I got to nineteen and I thought that can't be what I'm talking about. Well, I should have just said in the middle of eighteen. Yeah, I should have just left four eighteen. And so that is what I want: releasing the captives. Thank you, Burke. You know, I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, why did I put that in there? But I was reading it not as individual words, but as just a whole. So, good. Okay, 418, releasing the captives. I got the right verses. <sighs> okay, um, let's see here. Um, did I do the life application? I don't think so. Um, oh, yeah, I did. Okay, okay so go ahead. 4106. You can't leave that verse. Can't leave what verse? There's nobody alive that does this last part. Taking every thought captive. Taking every thought to the captive. obedience of Christ, every thought captive. Well, it's self-explanatory. Yeah, well, well, you know we have. Do I need weird to? Do I need? Do I need bad to, thoughts and everything? And we're supposed to take every thought. Captive. Every thought captive, and that's what he said. 
I mean, how can you add to that? There's nothing I can add to it without actually damaging it. Yeah. And so I just, but you're right. I mean, I probably should have read it again in the commentary. But yeah, you got to take every thought captive to Christ, everything. And it's hard to do. It's some very hard to do that. Repent. What's that? I think some of those thoughts might have Yeah, to some of those thoughts are definitely have to repent. I mean, go through Charlie Garrett's head on any day, and there's probably 10,000 thoughts that I need to repent. I need to change my mind about. That's absolutely right. But yes, you're right, Bert. You're absolutely right. Okay, 10-6. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Okay, Paul finishes this thought with the continued use of a military metaphor. When an enemy is subdued and the military has gained control over their foe, they are inevitably rebels who still want to continue to fight by attacking the conquerors. Okay, one of my favorite movies in all history. It is. It's my favorite movie, hands down. Hands down. There's no movie I like more than it, and if it would come up on Netflix or YouTube or whatever, I'd be watching it once a month. It's the outlaw Josie Wales, the one guy that would not surrender. And he... You know, he didn't take the battle to them. He just wanted to be left alone. But when they brought the battle to him, he defended himself. And boy, he took out a lot of folks in that movie. But it has got more good one-liners than any movie in the history of the universe. It is a great, great movie. What's the name of that? The Outlaw Josie Wales. It, it, it is my favorite movie, hands down. It, it is a very, very good movie. Anyway. What's your favorite line? Um... Uh, Worms got to eat too, you know. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, there's a lot of good lines. There are just tons. Of, right, are you are you gonna pull those pistols or are you gonna whistle Dixie? I mean, you know, it's just it's one line after another. The entire thing. You asked me for a favorite, and that just came to mind first. But there is no favorite. It's just it's white men been sneaking up on me for years. Okay, whatever. I mean, it just goes on and on. Okay, we're gonna have to go. Um, you read the verse, correct? Ten six. Okay, Paul finishes this thought with the continued use of him. Oh, that's right. I was talking about uh, the one that wouldn't surrender and getting back to the conquerors. They may sneak in and kill one at a time, or they may disrupt supply lines or even attack directly against the headquarters of the victor. Okay, these are the people that didn't surrender. Though there is little chance of success, they, re they remain disobedient to the terms of surrender and the hopes of regaining the battle and somehow overcoming those who vanquished them. This is the case in the world today. Satan has been vanquished, and yet he continues to send his minions out in hopes of someday thwarting Christ's victory. The spiritual warfare is what Paul is referring to, and there is a time when the obedience of the saints is fulfilled and the church age will come to a close. We hope that's soon. At that point, all disobedience will be punished. Those who have attempted to overthrow the victory of Christ will themselves be overthrown. This is what is coming in the book of Revelation and just prior to his return to dwell among his people during the millennium, meaning Israel, Reformed theologians, he will return to Israel. Jesus says that himself explicitly in the book of Matthew. He says it explicitly. If you can't read those verses and understand what he's talking about, I can't help you. He says that speaking to Jerusalem, when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, okay? That's not speaking to the Gentiles. It's not speaking about anything in this dispensation. It is speaking specifically to Israel. When they do that, he will return to them. And until then, he ain't coming, okay? He'll be meeting us in the clouds. He's not gonna meet us on the earth here, okay? So, so much for Reformed theology. Life application, 
and I don't mean all of Reformed theology, I'm talking about that particular doctrine in Reformed theology. Life application, though the victory is already accomplished in Christ, there are those who harass and attack his people. This will continue, but all such harassment will end in futility, and all of it will be punished at the right time. Until then, we should pray for those who are our enemies and do our best to witness to them of the truth of Jesus Christ. So is this still alluding a little bit to this uh, guy who had his mother-in-law at all? You know, back in First Corinthians, he said, cast him out. I no, I don't think so. He resolved that earlier. Remember, he said, "If there's anything to forgive, then we I have forgiven him." And so, I don't think this has anything to do with that. Yeah, it may be on his mind, but I don't think that's what he's speaking specifically about. Ten seven. You are looking only on the surface of things. If anyone is confident he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. Okay, this is a little different. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, so even so we are Christ's. So it reads kind of the same, but it's just different. It should be noted that this sentence, like other clauses in this section of Paul's writings, could be taken in one of three different ways. One, as an interrogative, do you look at things? Two, as an imperative, look on things, or three as an indicative, you look on things. Scholars disagree on what his intent is, and so translations vary. No matter which structure Paul intended, the idea of the outward appearance would be fully understood by his audience. It was an idiom then as it is now. Jesus uses it in John chapter 7, where he says this, John chapter 7, and then in verse 24, he says, do, 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 where am I? Oh, yeah, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was a... I'm in Acts. It always helps to be in the right book. I knew that wasn't the verse I wanted. Uh, I've got it right here. It's John 7 and verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Okay? And that's the verse I almost quoted it, and I thought, I'm going to read it from the word... And I'm in the book of Acts. Always helps to be in the right book, folks. Paul wants them to know that outward appearance is not always reflective of the inward man. There were those who claimed to be of Christ, noted in 1 Corinthians 1.12, and they claimed to be his followers and that their allegiance was to him alone. However, the word of God and the instruction for the people who had not seen Christ came through the teachings of the apostles. Therefore, if they rejected what the apostles said, then how could they be of Christ? Likewise, there were those who have, may have seen Christ and heard his ministry, and yet were not commissioned by him. They may have been of the same area that he came from, of the same tribe as him, and so on. Thus, they could claim a special affiliation with him. It would be enticing to follow such a person. This happens today when people follow the teachings of a Jewish person because they are Jewish regardless as to whether they actually teach the Bible correctly or not. Oh, they can speak Hebrew. They must be super religious and all-knowing. It's an incorrect and dangerous way of pursuing one's religion. The list could go on and on. Fine orators, seemingly spirit-given gifts of healings, tongues, or miracles, and so on, could lead people to say, I am of Christ. The Christian world is besieged by such people today, and many of them are charlatans. To counter this, Paul says, if anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, 
let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. How is one to tell? It all must go back to the commission of the individual by Christ. If they were commissioned by him, then the others who are also commissioned could testify to their apostleship. Paul received such a testimony on several occasions. Now, with the apostolic era ended, there is one and only one way to determine the truth of the matter. That's right. Jim is pointing at his Bible. It is our sole inspired witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is also the source which reveals the apostolic teachings of him. Our consideration as to whether we are Christ's or not must come from this word. Have we trusted the God of the Bible who is revealed in the person of Jesus in the Bible? There's a logical way to know. God has not left our faith up to emotion, and he has not left it up to any teaching of any man. Instead, he has given us the Bible for us to know that our faith is properly directed. Life application Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, has his apostleship substantiated in writing in the Bible's pages. We don't need to guess whether his words are inspired or not. Instead, we can know with absolute assurance that they are. When he says that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, who is revealed in the Bible, we should take that at face value. Don't be led astray by those who would add in works to what Christ has already done. Have faith that his work, his work alone, is sufficient to save. Okay, 10.8. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up, rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Okay, he says here, edification and destruction, instead of building it, building up and pulling down. Paul uses the word for boast 36 times in his letter, but 20 of them are in 2 Corinthians. It appears that he almost has an insecurity complex, which is built up in him concerning his dealing with the Corinthians, and he is working through that by the use of this word. It is as if they question his authority when he was the one who established the church among them. Time and time again, he returns to this word to show that he and the other apostles do have the authority necessary to conduct themselves as the Lord's representatives. Again, he turns to the idea of boasting. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, that's his words. In the previous verse, he wanted them to consider his and his associates' position in Christ. Now he brings in not just that they are in Christ, but that they have the authority within the body to exercise discipline, establish doctrine, and so on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he directed the church to take certain actions concerning a person who was engaged in sexual immorality. That's who you were speaking of. It wasn't a request, but rather it was a directive. Elsewhere, he writes of both commands and exhortations and the reason for this is that the authority is that which the Lord gave us. It was granted by the head of the church, and therefore the church was to understand this. But in a gentle note, he relays that the authority is for edification and not for your destruction. What is obvious is that the Lord, it is the Lord, it is not us, it is the Lord who is building a church. He will assign people to positions of authority to build it up and not to destroy it. If a person starts a company, his goal is to make it successful. He wouldn't hire someone to tear apart the company, but to direct it so that it will grow and flourish. 
Anything less would be contrary to the end goal of the company. The same is true with the church. Because of this, in his boasting, Paul says, I shall not be ashamed. If he has been granted authority, and if he uses that authority to edify, just as he would be expected, then he would have a right to boast in the authority he possessed. And this would, wouldn't be a haughty, self-directed boasting, but one which was in satisfaction for having proved faithful to the one who established him in the position in the first place. Life application. In our walk with Christ, we have all opportunities to lead. Every Christian has the chance, for example, to lead someone else to Christ. That is an authority which has been granted to any saved believer. If we use that authority, then is it wrong to boast in it? The answer is no. If it is proper boasting, then it is acceptable. Later in this chapter, Paul will show us that when we glory, it should be in the Lord. If our boasting is directed to him, then it cannot be wrong. Man, I led somebody to Christ today. To God be the glory. That's not wrong. You're saying you did something, you're boasting, and you're giving God the glory. That's what Paul is trying to convey to us right now. There are some people that will never say anything about themselves, and I can't do that. You know, There's no point in that. You acknowledge that you've done something and then pass the credit on to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. Good stuff there, and it's time to close. We're, we're just down to the end of our time. So and It usually comes down to which, which order do you put yourself to Christ? That's right. Is Christ in the center, or is it you in the center? That's so right. Like, you, know, you can boast all you want, so long as... As long as Christ, Christ is, is in, in the, the center, center of, of that boasting. That's a very good way of saying it. Exactly. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the uh, chance to come here today and to uh, study your word and to fellowship with other people. And we thank you that even though we have a small class and it's probably going to get smaller in the days ahead, that uh, we can have some fellowship here in the class while uh, still studying your word. And we certainly pray for Lisa, who's starting a new year uh, of life. And we would pray that the year ahead would be one of happiness and contentment for her. And uh, we also pray for anybody else that's having a birthday this month, that they would uh, not be fearful about the life ahead and understand that... Uh, all the things that are happening in the world are ordained by you, and that goes for every one of us. Even though we may not be having a birthday this month, we're certainly living in the world, and we're certainly facing all of these difficult times. And Lord, we can take them, and we can put them right in your hands where they belong, and we cannot let these things get us down. So help us to have that attitude, the mind of Christ, where every thought is drawn captive to him and to him alone and that we just focus on him and not let the cares of this world bring us down. May that be so. We pray this, that you will be glorified, and we pray it in his beautiful name. Amen. Amen.